All right, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And also, uh, you might want to turn, maybe put a finger in the book of 2 Peter. Now, if you have an app on your phone or something, I'm not quite sure how you do that, but <clears throat> we're going to be uh, starting in, in both of those uh, passages. Our series, Future or Fairy Tale, what the Bible teaches about the afterlife, and today we're actually going to start talking about uh, the afterlife, uh, uh, what the Bible teaches about it. We've been exploring some important foundational issues that we needed to look at, like, for example, can we have confidence that what the Bible teaches about the afterlife is actually true? So we've done some of that, and now it's time to start looking at some specific things the Bible does teach about the afterlife. And we're going to start here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, focusing on verses 9 through 10. The Apostle Paul writing to a church in a town called Thessalonica says to those believers in Jesus, verse 9, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's so much important truth packed into these two verses. But I want to focus on the words, to wait, to wait for his son from heaven. These words are telling us that those who have a genuine faith relationship with Jesus Christ, like the Thessalonians, those who have a genuine faith relationship with Jesus have an amazing future to look forward to. And we should look forward to it. And you can see this in many places. Uh, one other place we're going to look at is in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, here are the words uh, of the Apostle Peter, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Waiting. See that word? Waiting? We don't usually think of waiting as a positive thing, do we? I mean, how many of you, I'd like to see the show of hands, how many of you really love to wait? Okay, there's one. I mean, how often do we enjoy sitting in a waiting room? Not usually, uh, that's not something on our list of fun things to do. But this waiting is very different. This is a different kind of witty. Now, the same word used here in 2 Peter 3 also is found in the book of Acts, chapter 3, where the apostles Peter and John are heading into the temple in Jerusalem and they encounter uh, a beggar, uh, a, a, a man who's crippled and unable to work for a living, and so he begs for his daily bread. And it says that 
as uh, Peter and John are going into the temple, they see him, and Peter says to the beggar, look at me. And, and this is what comes next. He, that is the beggar, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And that's the word, expecting. That's the same word translated waiting in 2 Peter 3. And that's the kind of waiting that Peter is talking about. Expecting, anticipating something that you really want. Well, what is it we are to be anticipating or expecting, looking forward to? Peter says, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus, this is your future. And it's something to be anticipating with an eagerness, looking forward to it. Why? Because if you do, if you eagerly look forward and anticipate it, it's going to make a positive difference in your life. Say, well, how? Uh, Let me explain with an example. I think the closest any of us have ever come to uh, thinking rightly about our eternal future is when we've had a really great vacation planned. And it's it's someplace we really, really want to go. You know, so I don't know where that would be for you. Maybe it'd be Hawaii or Disneyland or Yellowstone or someplace. But it's a place you really want to go, and you're going to go with people you really love, that you really want to spend time with, and you're going to do things you really want to do. And you, you, you just, you're eager, you're, you're looking forward to it. It's, it's on the books, you've got your tickets, or you've got you know, your plans, and you're, you're anticipating, you, you look forward to that. Now, ask yourself, if you've got something like that plan, something you're looking forward to, and you're, you're really excited about it, does that make a difference in your attitude? Does that make a difference in how you feel, how you act, how you handle the difficulties that come up today? Sure it does. Because you think, yeah, well, this isn't so great, but soon you get to go do this, you get to be there. Well, here's the thing. Our ultimate future that we have as believers in Christ is so much better than any vacation you can think of. So much better. And nothing's going to go wrong. You're not going to run out of gas. You're not going to get stuck in the TSA line. None of that stuff's going to happen. And God wants us to eagerly anticipate our eternal future to an even greater degree than we look forward to something great we're anticipating here. And if we do that, he wants us to do that because of the difference it's going to make in our lives, in our thinking, our feeling, and so on. You can see right here in 2 Peter 3, Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the new, the new heaven and new earth, in other words, since you're waiting, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, when you as a believer in Jesus know what your ultimate future is and you think about it and you anticipate it, you look forward to it, it motivates you to live the way Jesus wants you to live. 
Now, the question I have for all of us, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with anticipating our ultimate future? I suspect that if we're honest, many of us would say, we're not spending all that much time thinking about it. And maybe it's not making as big of a difference in our lives as it could be and should be. Maybe we're too preoccupied with the present. Or maybe we've picked up some false notions about our future that frankly aren't that appealing and so that those ideas kind of discourage us from really looking forward to our future. Whatever the reasons, there might be a variety of reasons, but whatever the reasons we might have for not being that excited, not thinking that much, anticipating our future, one of my goals for this series is to help us become much more interested in and much more excited about the future that God has promised to us. That's one of my goals. So, here's the specific question I want to deal with today, and that is, what will our ultimate future be like, this ultimate destination? What's it going to be like? Because if, if we don't have any idea of what it's going to be like, it's going to be very hard to get too excited about it, right? I mean, if you have no idea what it's going to be like, you, you just won't get that excited. Imagine this. Imagine if you're a parent, and you, you gather your kids up and say, hey, kids, guess what? This summer, we're going to go to Disneyland. But your kids have led a very sheltered existence, and they have no idea what that is. You know, maybe they've heard the word Disneyland, but they have absolutely no idea of what it means to take a trip to Disneyland and spend time there. They don't know. And when they ask you, you don't know either, because you've led a very sheltered life. And that's why they don't know. And so you say, I don't know. But hey, there was a good deal. We bought the tickets. Don't really know what it's about. In fact, I've heard we can't know. All we know is it's going to be completely, utterly, completely different from anything you've ever experienced before. Well, would it be surprising if they didn't get too excited about it? that they didn't really look forward to it because they don't have any idea what that means. And if it's going to be utterly, completely different, well, it's the same way with our eternal destination. If we don't know anything about it, and if we cannot imagine what it's going to be like, then we're not really going to look forward to it. And there are people who say, well, there's no way we can know what it's really going to be like. That's not true. That's not true. Yes, there are things we don't know, but God has told us more than enough about our eternal destination for us to get excited about it and look forward to it if we will pay attention to what he has told us. So that's what we want to do. Now, many of the insights I'm going to share with you today come from this book by Randy Alcorn, titled Heaven, and it's big, and Randy does a great job of just kind of bringing together all of the teaching about our uh, future 
and putting them together, and it's all from the Bible, and I recommend the book if you haven't read it. So here's the question I want to consider. What will our future be like? A couple answers. First, it will be like good things we've already known. It will be like good things we've already known. Now, I said a minute ago that if you've picked up false ideas about our ultimate future, um, that will keep you from looking forward to it. And one of those false notions that's fairly uh, common is that eternity is going to be a purely spiritual existence. Purely spiritual existence in a purely spiritual environment with purely spiritual beings. Obviously, that sounds spiritual. (laughs) But the fact is, being in a purely spiritual realm with purely spiritual companions has very little appeal for us. Why? Because we have absolutely no idea what that means. We have no idea what that would be like because... We, we are physical beings as well as spiritual. I mean, we spend our whole lives in physical bodies, in physical environments with other physical people. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's everything right about that. How did God make us? This is how. God made us this way, and he called how he made us, what? What did he say? Good, and then very good. He looked at all that he had made. Now, sin entered the picture and messed things up, but you have to get this. It was not sin that made us physical. God did. God made us physical. And what does Jesus promise to do for, any, for everyone who trusts him, what's he going to do with our bodies? He's going to resurrect them. That means we are going to continue to be physical in eternity. Now, obviously, it's going to be far greater than anything we've experienced. All of those aches and pains and other problems that entered into the world when sin did, That'll all be gone. And Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, says that our present bodies compare to our resurrection bodies the way a seed compares to a full-grown plant. Now, obviously, uh, a plant is greater than a seed, but there's still a physical connection there between what is and what is to come. And there are many good things that we enjoy as physical creatures in a physical world that are going to continue in an even greater way in the world to come. So think about it. Things like eating and drinking and hearing and seeing. You know, as you, as you got up today and looked out, didn't you just think, wow, so beautiful and that our senses can perceive all this beauty, this color, and hear the birds singing and, and feel the warmth of the sun 
and all of these things, seeing and touching and tasting and, and laughing. He has those videos people put on Facebook and stuff of little toddlers cracking up. Have you seen those? Can you watch those and not laugh? It's impossible. God made us to laugh. God invented that. God invented singing. We enjoy these things because we're human, not because we're sinners. And we're still going to be human in eternity. You know, this, this Hollywood myth that in eternity we're going to all sprout wings and become angels, that's not, there's no biblical basis for that. That's not true. And yet, people have this idea that in eternity, everything's going to be completely different, absolutely unlike anything in this life. The Bible never says that. It never says that. In fact, when the Bible describes eternity, it describes eternity with things that we are familiar with and love. Okay, let me give you some examples. Look at Jesus' words in John 14, verses 1 through 3. He says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself in my Father's house, that where I am, you may be also. So look what Jesus is saying. He's saying our ultimate destination is his father's house. Well, we all know what a house is. We know what a home is. And it's a very familiar, very comforting place. Most people, if, if you've had a decent family life growing up, most people love the thought of going home. Going home is where we belong. It's where we can be ourselves. It's where we can relax. It's where we can enjoy being with people we love. And in this house, this ultimate house, it's all good, and Jesus will be there. Jesus will be there. We'll all be together in his Father's house. Now, you know, somebody might say, well, yeah, but isn't that symbolic? Isn't that a spiritual house? What in the world is a spiritual house? I mean, is it a real thing or not? Okay, I realize there's symbolism here, but just because something is symbolic doesn't mean it's not real. For example, this is a symbol, this wedding ring right here. This is a symbol of the vows Karen and I made to each other on our wedding day. Okay, so it is symbolic, but it's real. It's a real thing, and... I think Jesus is saying that our future includes living in an actual, real place where we belong, where we feel at home, where we experience love and security and joy. It's where Jesus is. So yeah, it's symbolic, but it's real. Let me give you another example of something we have known. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for, adorned for her husband. Now, there are familiar things here. Start with the new earth. See, now that's her ultimate destination. Because the new city, the, I mean the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, comes down out of heaven to where? To the new earth. That's where our ultimate destination is. Now think about it. Why call it the new earth? As Randy Alcorn points out, it doesn't say non-earth. It says new earth. Why? Because in some ways, in many ways probably, it's going to be like the old earth. It's going to be earthly, earth-like. So, remember, earthly doesn't mean sinful. It means earthly. God created the earth, and what did he call it? Good, very good. Right? So things like dirt and water and trees and mountains and animals and, and fruit and flowers and people, these are all good things, good earthly things. And if you read all the different passages that speak about our eternal home, there's every reason to believe that the new earth will contain all of these good things, all the things that make the earth a wonderful place to be. Far greater, certainly, because no more curse, no more brokenness, but a real earth with all the real things that make this earth so wonderful. And then there's this new city, the new Jerusalem. Now, this could well be what Jesus was referring to when he talked about my father's house. It's a house so big that it's a city. It's another way to describe it. Now, I know for some of you, city is not necessarily appealing. That's why you all live on this side of the river, right? Because <laughs> when you think of a city, you go, oh, crowds and noise and pollution and and crime, and poverty, and traffic, and trying to find a place to park. <laughs> but that's because our cities are broken. They're broken by sin. The, the whole world is. But you have to realize, to the original readers of the book of Revelation, the first people who saw this, a city was a very desirable place. Because it meant prosperity. It meant community. And above all, it meant security, safety, because you were safe within the city walls. That's why cities had walls. If you were outside the city, you were vulnerable. If you were inside the city, you were secure. And craftsmanship. And if you keep reading in Revelation 21, you see that's exactly how the city is described. It's got this strong wall and massive foundations and beautiful craftsmanship and lots of room. Lots of room for everybody. No traffic. And there's gold, and there's shining gems of every color everywhere, which tells us, by the way, that we're not going to spend eternity floating around on white clouds. That's not it. Okay, here's the point. We know what gems are. We know what gold is. We know what gates and walls and cities are. We're familiar with them. And we've all seen beautiful architecture. You ever gone across the St. John's Bridge over there? That's a beautiful bridge. You, you have this beautiful architecture. You've seen beautiful parks. 
and buildings. Now, imagine all of the beautiful things connected with a city with none of the ugliness, with none of the brokenness. You see, we can imagine that because of what we have known, what we have experienced. We can imagine a city without the junk. And there's more. Revelation chapter 22 describes a beautiful river. And this river's lined with trees bearing fruit. Well, we know what rivers are. We know what trees are. We know what fruit is. So are we going to eat that fruit? Yes. <laughs> of course. Of course. Jesus ate after the resurrection. And Philippians tells us he's going to make our bodies like his. And then in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a wedding feast. We know what weddings are. We know what feasts are. These are happy things. These are enjoyable things. These are things we look forward to. So, to think about your eternal future, if you belong to Christ, think of all the truly good things you have ever known. And imagine those good things becoming far, far better. A far better house on a far better earth in a far better city with far better everything. And then you're beginning to get the idea. God tells us these things so that we will think about them and imagine them and anticipate them, look forward to them. Our future will be like good things we've already known. Well, here's the other answer. What's it going to be like? It will be like perfect things we've only dreamed about. So good things we've already known and perfect things we've only dreamed about. Look at Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, mankind. He will dwell with them. With them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. We've never known a world like this. We've never known a world with no death. We've never lived with no mourning, no crying, no pain. Why? Because we've never known a world without sin. And contrary, contrary to the lie that we are constantly being told and constantly being tempted with, it is not sin that makes life fun and exciting. Sin does not make life fun and exciting. Sin makes life a nightmare. 
of broken promises and betrayals and heartache and suffering and frustration and bitterness and all of the other terrible things that infect our world. You and I can only dream of a world without the wretchedness of sin. But one day, we won't have to dream anymore. It will be real. We will experience the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And if you heard what I just said, where righteousness dwells, and you think, oh, righteousness, man, that sounds boring. Like this uh, Far Side cartoon. So here's a guy, and he's in his eternal destination. And apparently he decided to forego the eternal sing-along that everyone else is involved in. You know, that's what so many people think heaven's going to be, just one eternal church service, and that's why a lot of people aren't particularly excited about it. This guy decided not to go, so he's just camping out on his cloud and wishing he brought a magazine because there's nothing to do. Now, if that is even remotely like what you think your eternal destiny is, it's no wonder you're not excited about it. That is absolute nonsense. That is not true. Why would we think that? True righteousness isn't boring. Oh yeah, there are people who are boring who think they're righteous. But it's not righteousness that makes them boring. (laughs) Righteousness is God-likeness. And God is the source of life and health and joy and pleasure. Who do you think invented pleasure? Satan? Satan didn't invent anything. All Satan can do is corrupt What's good? God invented pleasure. And he's the source of laughter and music and dancing. God created mountains to climb and rivers to swim and people to love and colors to see and sweetness to taste and pleasure to experience and minds that think and hands that create and build. Imagine to be... Imagine being able to do all of those things without sin, without any regrets, without broken hearts, without broken promises, without mixed motives, without sorrow, without disappointment. That's the life that today we can only dream of. And one day we won't have to dream. We won't have to dream, it'll be real. And then there's this, Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. It says, God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, some people think that in eternity we're going to know everything. No, we won't. Only God knows everything. You know, this idea that we'll have nothing to learn, again, that's not in the Bible. 
The Bible never says that. Only God knows everything. We, on the other hand, will spend the coming ages, notice that word, plural, ages, learning the immeasurable riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Immeasurable. You know what that means? It means you can't measure it. There's so much. Do you realize that Jesus is so great we will never run out of things to learn and to be amazed at about him? He's infinite. You know, what we know about Jesus today is like having a little thimble full of water compared to the Pacific Ocean. That's how much we know about Jesus today, which is amazing. But it's just the beginning. And today we can only dream of seeing his glory face to face, but one day we won't have to dream. So, if you're a believer in Christ, this is your future. Your future will be like the good things you've already known and like perfect things you've only dreamed about. And if you don't want to go there, with all due respect, you're just not thinking right. And when I don't want to go there, and when I don't want to think about it, and I don't want to get excited about it, I'm not thinking right. Something's not getting through. What do we do? We need to ask God to soften our hearts and sharpen our minds. Soften our hearts, sharpen our minds, change our desires. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. I don't know, you know, it's so funny what people will say, man, that's the greatest thing ever. No, this is. This is the greatest thing ever. And you know what? You can know you're going there. You can know it. You can know it. How? By putting your trust in Christ and asking him to bring you there. Ask him to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, to bring you to God. How do you get to God? There's only one way. You ask Jesus to bring you. He brings you, not based on your merit, but entirely on his. He alone can bring you to God. And when he does, one day, he's going to bring you to his father's house. Let's pray together. Father, this is an amazing future you have promised to those who trust your Son, trust what your Son did for us. Lord, I confess there have been many times when I have wanted other things more than you, wanted to experience other things more than I want to experience it. Lord, I freely confess I was out of my mind when I thought like that. And I pray you would help all of us just think and feel what you would want us to, that our anticipation of this future would just characterize how we live, our attitudes, our actions, everything we do. May we live today in light of this day. And we pray you'd give us that anticipation that will glorify you and satisfy us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.